0: I'm really excited to be with y'all today. I personally am, uh, am an introvert and a little bit of a germaphobe. If I've given you a pound today, know that right after that pound, I've taken a dab of hand sanitizer because uh, that's just what my brain tells me I got to do. So I didn't realize how much I missed being with everybody. Uh, until I got here today, until we were all singing, until I stepped out of my car and immediately Joelle said, with my wallabies and striped socks, I look like a Christmas elf. <laughs> Did I realize how much I miss being around everybody as Zion? And so I'm really excited that we get to be here together today in a limited capacity, but, uh, but still, I'm, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. So, uh, if you're celebrating today, happy Mother's Day, uh, We said it a few times, but we really appreciate and love all of the all of the mothers among us. Uh, You're such a blessing to us. Um, And if you're not celebrating today, if maybe you're mourning today, then we want you to know that there's space for that as well. And myself or any of the leaders here would love to come alongside and pray with you and mourn with you. Uh, We know that that holidays like today can be uh, pretty polarizing depending on where you're at in your life. Uh, so just know that wherever you're at on the spectrum, there's space for you here today. We love you. God's here with us, and, and we, we're willing to come alongside with you. So in true Zion fashion, uh, we're going to spend a holiday uh, speaking about a very heavy topic and heavy portion of scripture. If you've been at Zion for, uh, for a good amount of time, if you spent some holidays with us, then you know this is what we do. Uh, this isn't a surprise. If this is... One of your first few holidays with us, uh, let me give you a little bit of insight. When we make the preaching schedule, uh, we don't factor in holidays outside of like Easter and Christmas. Uh, so that allows for some really fun mashups to happen, like <laughs> circumcision on Father's Day. You know what I'm saying? Like it allows for some really fun mix ups. <laughs> and so continuing in tradition, today we're gonna talk about submission on Mother's Day. Now, if you're like me, the word submission probably makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit, especially in a context like this. Uh, Maybe you got a little bit tense. Maybe you felt a little uncomfortable. Maybe you glanced toward the elevator to think about how quickly you could get out before we started the sermon. But if that's how you're feeling, uh, just know you're in good company. Submission makes me feel all of those ways as well. And it's for a few reasons. It's because in the context of church, many of us have seen uh, submission or the concept of submission abused and used for manipulation, used for control, used for selfish, uh, for selfish purposes. Uh, and in terms of our society and our culture, where autonomy is the most important thing, the concept of submission really pushes hard against that. And so it's become somewhat of a taboo topic uh, to speak about in or outside of the church, right? But as we read the scriptures, we see the concept of submission everywhere. We see uh, uh, wives submit to your husbands, and Justin preached on that a few months ago. We see submission to uh, earthly uh, leadership and authority and government. We see submission to one another. And so unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of just putting these verses aside and putting this, this concept aside, Uh, But it's our responsibility to really dig in and, and wrestle with these scriptures and see what God's calling us to do. So as I was doing that prepping for this sermon, I really felt like God wanted us to take a step back and look at what a life submitted to him looks like. Because if we don't have a good understanding of what submission to God should look like, then we can't have a good understanding of what submission to one another looks like. If we can't submit to God vertically, we can't submit to one another horizontally The way he's calling us to do, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend time in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and we're going to examine how Jesus submitted his life to the Father, and how uh, we we are to be informed through that about how we should submit our lives. So, without further uh, further ado, let's let's jump into the scripture. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them once again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, "'Sleep, take your rest later on. "'See, the hour is at hand, "'and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. "'Rise, let us be going. "'See, my betrayer is at hand.'" Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for this gathering. We thank you for this day. God, we ask that that you would speak clearly today, that it wouldn't be my words, but it would be yours. Truly, apart from you, I can do nothing. And so I pray that you would speak to all of our hearts today through the scripture. In your name we pray, amen. So before we jump into the scripture and before we, we, uh, we start to, to really dive into what's going on here, I want us to get on the same page about something. I want us to, to, to set a foundation of the doctrine of incarnation. And so if you're not familiar with, with what that is, the incarnation is when Jesus came to the earth, It's when Jesus was born uh, as a human. It's what we celebrate on Christmas. That's the Incarnation. And while the doctrine of incarnation is is very wide and there's a lot we could talk about, um, and actually in the sermon uh, uh, resource guide that we send out, there's going to be some some good resources there if you want to dive into it. But for the sake of today's sermon, I want to talk about how Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Now, if you're a mathematician like me, you can do that math pretty quickly and see that's too much percentages right, that's 200%, and that doesn't make much sense to us logically. So let me explain what that means. That means that uh, uh, Jesus is God, and when Jesus was born on the earth, he didn't become any less God. He didn't lose any of his divine attributes, but rather he took on, in addition to his divine attributes, human attributes and a human nature. So Jesus, as he lived on earth, had his godly nature, his divine nature, and in addition to that, he had his human nature. And he carried both of these as he lived on earth. That means that he existed on earth the same way that we do. That means that he felt emotions the way that we feel emotions that means that he felt sadness and anger and joy and happiness he experienced the human uh, the human experience the same way that we do and as we get into the scripture we're going to see why that's really important for us to understand it also means that he was tempted the same way that we are tempted right hebrews 4:15 says for we do not have a high priest who is unable the high priest is jesus For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus felt emotions the way we feel emotions, and he was tempted the way that we were tempted. Jesus lived on earth just as we do. And so without viewing Jesus as both God and man, we lose a really important aspect of who he is. If we if we're too far on either sides of this spectrum, then we're going we're not going to fully understand who Jesus was, why he came and what we're supposed to learn from his life on earth. Now, this is something that I personally struggled with as a teen uh, when I came to faith. 15, 16 years old, or or when I started taking my faith seriously, this was a really difficult concept for me to grasp. Uh, it was very easy for me to view, God, view Jesus as God, right? When I read the scriptures, I see somebody who's in total control. I see someone who's calm, cool, and collected. He always has an answer. He always knows the next step. He knows where to go. He knows when to go. He knows how to get there, right? I don't see Jesus questioning things the way I question things uh, in my everyday life, right? It seems like Jesus was in full control, so it was real easy for me to see his divine attributes, but it was really difficult for me to see him as a human. And I remember going to a youth conference um, called Battle Cry. If you've been around New York Church for a long time, then you probably remember this conference too. Um, this was like 13, 14 years ago, which was wild to me as I did the math preparing the sermon uh, that this was so long ago. Uh, but I remember at Battle Cry, one of them, the, the preacher was preaching on this passage of scripture. And in his sermon, he said, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. And can I tell you, this made me so angry. And I denounced this preacher as a heretic. And I said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is 16-year-old me who just started reading my Bible like four months ago, right? But I was popping off at this preacher talking about how terrible he was and how wrong he was. I couldn't accept the fact, I couldn't understand that Jesus... Uh, could have had any moments where he doubted the cross, where it seemed like he didn't want to go. This scripture was really hard for me because throughout the gospels, he's constantly talking about dying. He obviously knew what he came for. He wasn't surprised by this, but yet we have this portion of scripture where we see him pleading with the father for another way to do it. And so as I've grown and matured and as we're going to explore today, I've I've realized and understood how beautiful and how important and how beneficial this glimpse into the human nature of Jesus is for us in our faith today. And so to quote this this, uh, preacher who I denounced as a heretic 13 years ago, Jesus did not want to die on the cross. And if that feels jarring, if that feels uncomfortable, that's okay. I know how you're feeling, but we're going to really explore the scripture and see what that means. And so what's happening here in the garden? Jesus takes uh, 11 of his disciples. Judas had already left to betray him. So Jesus is with 11 of his disciples, and he takes them to the garden of Gethsemane. The book of Luke, uh, recounting the same, the same passage uh, says that they went to this garden often. So Jesus takes them to the garden. It's a place they're familiar with, but he leaves them at the front. He, he takes them in and he says, eight of you stay here. And he calls three of them to go further with him. And these three were James, John, and Peter. Now, James, John, and Peter were the disciples that were closest to Jesus. So think about your friend circle, right? You probably have a good number of people, uh, hopefully still after this pandemic, you still have a good number of people that you consider friends, right? They're people you love, they're people you share meals with, they're people you talk with, you laugh with, you argue with. But within that group, there's probably a smaller handful of people that you consider closer than the rest. They know you a little more intimately than the rest know you right? They know your fears. They know your shortcomings. They know your dreams. They know your sins, right? They know you on a deeper level. And so that's what that's what these three were to Jesus. They were the three that were closest to Jesus. And so Jesus calls them deeper into the garden. He leaves the eight further out. He takes three deeper in because he's about to be fully transparent with them about what he's feeling. He's about to be extremely honest with them about what he's going through at the moment. And so he takes the three that are closest to him. And what does he tell them? He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now, a modern translation of that might sound like I'm so sad that I think I might die. Right. Jesus was saying what I'm feeling, my emotional state right now is so heavy that it feels like my physical body might shut down from it. It feels like I might drop dead right here in this garden before I even get to the cross. Jesus is saying what I'm feeling is so heavy that my physical body can't handle it. Now, if you, if you or somebody you love has suffered from mental health, uh, uh, um, from mental health issues, Feel like issues is not the right word, but I can't think of a better word right now, Uh, but here where I'm going, Uh, then you probably know how your mental health has an impact on your physical body, right? I suffer from seasonal affective disorder, among other things, uh, or SAD for short, which to me is the most unfortunate name for a mental health disorder, (laughs) but I didn't get to name it, so... What seasonal affective disorder is, uh, is it means that the the weather outside, the weather conditions, the time of year, really affects my mental health. It affects my mood, it affects how I feel, right? And one of the first times I came to grips with this, uh, I was on vacation with my family in, in Portland. We were just outside of Portland in Hood River, and if you know anything about the Pacific Northwest, this was Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine. If you know anything about the Pacific Northwest, then you, you know that it's usually overcast and gloomy, right? It rains a lot over there. And it doesn't rain like it rains here, where when it's raining, you stay inside, right? Or you just run to the car. It's just like a constant drizzle. It's always a little bit wet. You can still go about your day, but it's always cloudy. So we were on vacation, right? And I woke up one day, and I just didn't have any energy to do anything. I felt like I had to stay in bed and sleep all day. And so I told my wife, I'm really not feeling up to it. We shouldn't go out. Uh, and she was like, we're 3,000 miles away from home. We're not going to stay in this dusty Airbnb. We're going to go out, right? So I said, all right, that's fair. I got dressed. I pushed myself out the door, right? And we went out, and we had a good time. But we had, we had lunch. We, we explored the neighborhood. Uh, but the whole time, I felt kind of foggy. I felt kind of cloudy. I just was kind of heavy and not, not fully into it but I was doing my best. At some point in the day, my energy came back to me, and I was a completely different person. Now I'm running around with the kids. I'm throwing them up on my shoulders. We take a drive through the mountains and get lost and end up at this like uh, plane museum in the middle of the mountains. It was a fantastic day. I have such good memories from that day, but it wasn't until I sat at the end of the day and, and thought back through what had happened that I realized the moment I felt my energy come back, was the moment that the clouds parted and the sun came out. Now, this was completely subconscious. It wasn't something that I said, oh, the sun's out. I can feel good now. It's something that happened and I realized after. I share this story just to drive the point home that your mental health affects your physical body. How you feel emotionally affects how you feel physically. And that's what Jesus is saying, but in a very, very, very extreme way. Jesus is saying, I feel like I'm gonna die. I feel like my physical body can't go on beyond this point because of the sorrow that I feel. Now, why was he feeling this way? Well, for one thing, he knew he was about to go to the cross. And he knew that the cross was gonna entail physical abuse and torture like he had never experienced before. He was gonna be beaten, he was gonna be whipped. He was going to be spat at, he was going to be hit, he was going to be humiliated, he was going to have to march carrying his own cross to be crucified, he was going to be hung on the cross, he was going to have nails driven through his hands and feet, and he was going to suffocate to death while he hung there naked for everybody to watch. This would be enough to make any of us half-step, right? Knowing that we were about to walk, walk into this would be enough to make any of us look at God and say, hey, is there another way we could go about this? But it wasn't just that that Jesus was feeling. Jesus also knew that for the first time in eternity, for the first time in all of existence, he was going to be separated from the Father. Jesus, the father, the son, and the spirit have existed in constant communication and relationship forever. Now, this didn't change when Jesus came to the earth. Jesus didn't take a step without being connected to God. But he knew that when he hung on the cross, he was going to have to become a curse. He was going to have to take on our sin and be separated from the father so the father could pour out his wrath upon him. Tim Keller writes in his book, The King's Cross, according to the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorify one another. Jesus says in his prayer recorded in John's gospel, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Each person of the Trinity glorifies one another. So the Father is constantly glorifying the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is constantly glorifying the Father and the Son. The Son is constantly glorifying the Father and the Spirit. I think I said that one twice, but you get the picture, right? This has been going on for all of eternity, and Jesus knows that in a little while, he's going to be separated from this dance for the first time. This has been what has fulfilled Jesus, that the Godhead, the Trinity, is fulfilled in itself. It doesn't, God doesn't need our worship. God is constantly being glorified by the other parts of the Trinity. And Jesus was about to be removed from this for the first time ever. And that was too heavy for him to bear. So we have the physical pain that he's about to go through, and we have the separation from God. And so he's talking to God in the garden about what he's about to go through. And that's what we're reading. That's what these prayers are. And so let's examine how Jesus was praying, right? What were these prayers to God? He's feeling so sorrowful that he might die. How does he approach the father with this? Well, first it says that Jesus fell on his face. And so this is a a posture of humility. So Jesus is laying himself down before the father. We also know that he's praying for a really long time. It's easy to read these scriptures and it's easy to read the Bible and kind of breeze through these things. Right. Because all it says is that he prayed. Can you let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. That takes me six seconds to read. Right. But what we see in the scriptures is that he was actually praying for a really long time. And we know this because he goes back to the disciples after each instance of prayer He's praying three times. And when he goes back to the disciples after the first time, he tells them, Could you not have waited with me for even one hour? So we know he was praying for at least an hour, right? So these were long prayers. They weren't short prayers. So he's humbling himself before God. He's he's laying down, he's falling on his face, and he's praying for a long time. It's my daughter. We also know that he was uh, uh, facing intense physical agony while he was praying, right? And we know that because he told his disciples that, but also in Luke 22, 44, again, this this is the same moment in time, but in the gospel of Luke, it says, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground his sweat became like drops of blood. Now, what does this mean? There are two schools of thought on this. One school of thought is that uh, Luke is is using a simile, and he's saying that Jesus was sweating so much, so profusely, that the blood was pouring out of him, uh, that his sweat was pouring out of him like blood would pour out of an open wound. Right now, think about that. Picture that. That's a lot of sweat. I've been in some prayer meetings where the AC been broken and everybody's sweaty while we praying in that place. But I've never sweat to the point that it looked like blood gushing from an open wound. Right. But there's also another school of thought. Some believe that Jesus was actually experiencing a really rare medical condition called hematidrosis which is a rare but very real medical condition that causes your, your, your blood to mix with your sweat. And so as you sweat, blood would actually seep through your skin with your sweat. And the cause for hematidrosis is extreme anguish. So these are the two schools of thought about what, what, uh, what Luke is trying to say when he says that uh, his sweat had become like blood. But either way, whichever whichever it actually was at the time, it's very clear that Jesus was in extreme anguish. Jesus was either praying so much that he was sweating uh, like if blood was pouring from an open wound, or he was actually sweating blood because he was in such deep anguish. Either way, he was in deep, deep anguish while he was praying to God. Now, the next thing to notice about how Jesus approached the father in prayer is that after each instance of prayer. Jesus ends it with not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus comes before the father. He makes clear his preference He's not pulling any punches. He's saying, hey, I don't want to do this. Is there another way that we can accomplish this without me having to go to the cross and be separated from you? Is there another way? And he's praying for like an hour at least on that first instance. So he's really pleading with the father. These aren't short light prayers. These aren't do your dishes prayers. This isn't your drive to work prayer. This isn't your in the shower prayer. Jesus is is spending time in deep anguished prayer, asking God to remove this cup from him. But each time he stops and says, but not my will, your will be done. So he's saying, this is what I want. But what I really want is what you want. So this is what I want for myself, but what's more important than that is what you want for me. And this is the key. This is the thing that we need to take away today. This is what submission to God looks like. Your will be done should be the backdrop of our lives. Every moment of our lives should be backed by the phrase, your will be done. And we know this is how Jesus lived, because earlier in the Gospels, when his disciples asked him, God, how, uh, Jesus, how should we pray? Jesus tells them to pray like this. He says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this isn't the first time Jesus submitted his will to God. This isn't the first time he prayed this prayer. This is how Jesus prayed. And this is how Jesus told his disciples to pray. Not my will, but your will be done should be the background music of our lives. This is the mark of a life truly submitted to God. It's not that you don't have your own preferences. It's not that you don't have your own wants. It's not that you don't make your requests known to God, but it's that you, all, you do this all with an understanding of not my will, but your will. What's most important is not what I want, but what you want. The prayer of not my will, but your will be done implies that your will is going to be different than God's. It implies that there are going to be moments where what you want might be the opposite of what God wants. And I'm not just talking about sinful desires. I'm talking about every decision and moment in your life. I'm talking about where you live and what you eat and where you work and who you hang out with. Every moment in our lives should be submitted to God in this way. And if we're truly praying these prayers, then there are going to be times where what we want is very different from what God wants. There was nobody on earth closer to God than Jesus. There never has been and there never will be. So if Jesus experienced this moment of having to submit his will to God. Then we'd be foolish not to think that we would have to do the same. If the closest person to God had this moment where he had to submit himself to God, then we are also going to have these moments. And it's not if, it's when we should be having these moments. This type of submission comes at a personal cost. These are easy prayers to say. It's easy to say, not my will, your will be done. It's easy to read this. I think most of us in the room would probably agree. Yes, this is how I want to live. Yeah, I agree. That's how we're supposed to live. I agree. That's what God's calling us to do. But if you examine and are honest with what this this means for our lives, it's going to come at a personal cost to you. And how do I know that? Well, it came at a personal cost to Jesus. We just read and established this extreme suffering and anguish and pain that Jesus was going through in the garden as he prayed these prayers to God. And so if Jesus experienced it, then we are going to experience it. It costed Jesus a lot. It costed him the pain in the garden. It costed him separation from God. It costed him the cross. It's going to cost us something to submit to God. Now, allow me to share two quick examples of how this has looked in my own life. I live in New York City, as most of us do, right? I am a father of three daughters We are a single income family because we homeschool our kids. New York City is the absolute worst city I could live in, somebody with my lifestyle could live in. It's overpriced, it's overcrowded, it's not kid-friendly. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have a week, a month. (laughs) Justin's laughing because I have these conversations with him often about how great it would be if we could live in another city. I can't tell you how, how much I'm waiting for God to tell us to plant a Zion Austin, Texas. <laughs> I'll take a Zion Portland. I'll take a Zion Pennsylvania right now, to be honest. <laughs> right? Living in this city is difficult for me. It, co- it costs a lot of sacrifices. I, I can't live the way I really wanna live, right? It'd be much easier for me and it'd be preferable for me to live in a city that's much cheaper with a much lower cost of living that I could get more space for me and my family that we could have like a backyard, maybe even a porch for under a million dollars, right? Like that, I'm not asking for a lot, <laughs> just a little bit. It don't even need to be a big backyard. It could be a small one, you know, like you just throw a little ball back and forth. That's it. But instead, we moved to Staten Island so we could get a little bit more for our money. We live in an apartment. Instead of us all having our own rooms, we all share rooms. Instead of me having an office, I have an office slash bedroom. Right. Instead of my wife having a, a garage to, to run her business out of. We do it in the living room, in the kitchen. Everything's multi-purpose, multi-function. We spend a lot of time real close to one another, whether we want to or not. And why? Why haven't I moved? Why haven't I left? It's because I know that God called me to love this city, to serve this city, and to live in this city. I feel like I could probably do two of those things without doing a third one. But that's not where God's led us yet. And so here I am preaching to you on a Sunday. Here I am serving in Zion because God called us to the city. And it takes a constant dying to self. It takes a constant getting off Instagram. It takes a constant telling my friends to stop sending me cheap houses in the cities that they live in. So that I could submit to God's will. That is, in this instance very different than mine. Now I want to share another example. This one is, is, uh, one that I hold a little bit, a little bit closer, a little bit closer to the chest. Uh, cause it's very, is it's very heavy and very personal. Um, that's what we're here for today. So, um, If you are close to me, if you spent time with me, then you probably know this about me. If you haven't, then this is probably going to be news to you. But I spent 10 years, I spent a decade in what's called a high control group, right? Layman's terms for that is a cult. It's what I've come to define as a Christian cult. And what does that mean? It means that on the outside, it looks like a Christian church on a Sunday morning, Most Sunday mornings, it looks just like your average Christian church. They have a Bible, they have a worship team, they speak about Jesus. But on the inside of it, it was a place of spiritual and emotional abuse and manipulation. And I was here for 10 years. I got there when I was uh, about 15 years old, right? And I was in a very vulnerable state of my life, which is how people get caught up in these groups. And the, the leaders of the group quickly became father figures to me. They became people that I trusted. They became people that showed me love when I needed love. And so it was very difficult for me to see through this. And it took 10 years for God to finally open my eyes about the unhealthy place I was in and for me to leave. Now, I've been out of that, of that, uh, of that group for about five years I was in that group for 10. So I've been out for half of the time that I was in it. Now, when I left, I thought I had deep relationships. Some of those people I had spent almost every day of the past 10 years with. Some of those people were the best men in my wedding. I was in their weddings. We were godfathers to each other's kids. But on the day I left, I lost 10 years worth of friends in a day. I got text messages and calls from some just got blocked by others. And the messages said something along the lines of, please don't call or contact me anymore. The devil is working in your life. You're in sin. Don't talk to me again. And this was a very jarring, difficult situation. It's very jarring to lose any friend. It's just indescribable how it feels to lose 10 years worth of friends in a day and go from what I thought was a robust community to just me, my wife, and my two young daughters overnight, literally overnight. Now, why do I share that? Because after that experience, it was very tempting for me to disregard the church in general. It was very tempting for me to just say, I'm not going to be involved in the church at all. This didn't cause me to lose my faith in Jesus miraculously, but it did cause me to lose my trust in the church. And it's taken a long time and a lot of processing and a lot of uh, conversations and a lot of prayer for me to work through this over the years. And why do I bring this up? I bring this up because me coming to Zion Church on a Sunday morning is sometimes the most difficult thing I have to do in a week. Sometimes while I'm standing here and seeing people, my brothers and my sisters, people I love, experiencing the presence of God, I'm in the back processing my trauma because a song reminded me of something or the way something was said triggered something else in me. And so there's been a ton of trauma for me to work through over the five years. Four of those years, I've been here at Zion. Many conversations with Justin, many conversations with my wife, many times where I felt like the best move was for me to just stop coming, was for me to move far away and get get into a church that had nothing to do with this world, right? But here I am preaching to you. Glory to God, because I promise you it's not me. Here we are planting another church in Staten Island. Why? Because not my will, but your will be done. I need us to understand, too, I'm not talking past tense. I'm talking two weeks ago was the last time I had, to, I had to wrestle through this. It's an ongoing thing. This is an ongoing uh, uh, prayer in my life. Not my will, but your will be done. And in submission to God's will, he's been faithful. He's kept me. He's given me a beautiful community, surrounded me with people that can help me process and heal and grow and cope and all of these things. But it's only come through a dying to self, And a cry of not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus is in the garden saying this is too difficult for me, I don't want to do it. I understand that very well, because that's often my prayer. That's often my conversation with God. This is too hard. Let's do this a different way. But not my will, your will be done should be the backdrop of our lives. And so in the scripture, we don't only see how Jesus responds. We see Jesus suffering intense pain, and then we see Jesus submitting his will to God. And we see that as the example of what we should do. Praise God. But the scripture also shows us how the other group of people who were there responded. It shows us what the disciples did while Jesus was praying and submitting to God in the midst of pain and agony. And instead of praying, the disciples went to sleep. Now, before we rag on the disciples, I know it's fun and easy to look at them in hindsight, be like ridiculous. How dare you? You fools. Let's look at what they were going through. Right. It was late at night. So they were tired. Just physically tired. Right. Also, their friend, their teacher, their leader, their rabbi had just told them that he felt so sad he was going to die. And if you've ever had a friend share pain with you like that, then you know that you take on that pain for yourself, a a piece of it at least. And, And in the book of Luke, actually, it says that they fell asleep because of sorrow. So they were so sorrowful that they felt like the only thing they could do was let their body shut down and go to sleep. Now, I said to pause before we rag on the disciples. Because when I read this scripture, And I look at Jesus and I look at the disciples, I see a much clearer reflection of myself in the actions of the disciples. I can relate much more to the disciples in this situation than I can to Jesus. Because countless times do I hit the snooze button in the morning so I could get a couple more minutes of sleep when I know that if I don't get up to spend quiet time with God, my house will not be quiet again for the rest of the day. Countless times at the end of a long day do I turn the TV on and just zone out, watching the same shows that I've watched a hundred times, watching The Office for the 16th time all the way through, then spending some time with God in prayer, in, in, in scripture reading. How often do I choose in my, in my few moments I have throughout the day to, to take a pause, how often do I just scroll through memes on Instagram? And if, you've, if we're friends on Instagram, you know how often I do that because you see how often I send you memes. <laughs> I see myself and the disciples as they sleep. And so I can take what Jesus told the disciples for me. What did he tell them? He told them to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. So he said, I'm being tempted here to go with my own will instead of God's. You're going to be tempted to do the same. You should pray the way I'm praying. What else did he tell them? He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Why did he tell them this? Because just a little while ago, they were all talking to him about, they're going to be, about how they were going to be with him to the end, about how they were ride or die. Right? Two of them said, hey, when your kingdom is established, can I sit at your right and left hand? Peter said, I'll never deny you. I'll be with you to the end, no matter what. And Jesus was saying, you've got good intentions, but your flesh is too weak to carry it out. You need to pray or you're gonna fall into temptation. Submission to God's will doesn't come from your flesh, but comes through prayer. It comes through the humility and prayer that Jesus modeled for us in the garden. And so if you desire your life to be one that submits to God, and that should be all of our desires because it's what God calls us to do, then your life should be one of humility and prayer lest you fall into temptation. Romans twelve two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Beloved, we face a microcosm of the Garden of Gethsemane every day in our lives. Moments when we need to decide, are we going to submit to the will of God or are we going to submit to our own will? Beloved, seek the will of God and pray that you'd be able to withstand temptation. Let your daily life echo the example of Jesus. Not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for your word, for your scripture. We thank you for the example that you give us. We thank you for this glimpse into the humanity of Jesus, our high priest who can relate to our weakness. We pray that you would give us the strength, give us the will and the desire to submit to you. Help the prayer of the, the call of our lives be not our will, but your will be done. Amen.